Hello and welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher. With me tonight is one of my oldest friends from our Athens family. His name is Tom. He has a degree in anthropology, another in sociology. He used to study archaeology, but there was no money in the field. So he switched majors. I have like I have had like five majors. We understand each other. Um, and he has as a personal symbol, owls. Um, he also loves to teach. He's an adjunct professor, and he has lots to say on lots of subjects. So we're going to talk about liminality. Hello, Tom. How you doing? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so much for your 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 pseudonym. I screwed that up, but it's fine. We had a little discussion <clears throat> and, and agreed it was kind of no. Nah, we don't have to worry about it. No, nah, not really. I love the idea of a pseudonym in the weird part of my brain, but it, it's cool. Well, you are a man of mystery. You do like to have secrets, so I do understand. It, so it We gave a you a good yeah. one, too. It was a very good one. Kind of edgelord-like, but I'm okay with that. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember the 90s. I yeah, know. exactly. Exactly. Okay, so we got into... Tom just visited, and we got into a, a long, long discussion about the subject of liminality and the paranormal and liminality and lots of things. So yeah. why don't you jump in and, and explain what what the topic of liminality encompasses, and we'll see where the conversation goes. Okay. So in anthropology, liminality is this, this status where you're not one thing or another because you're transforming yourself from one status to another. So a liminal person might be in that weird stage between like childhood and adulthood, or in that weird stage between married and widowed or, you know, whatever else you're the other. No one really knows what to do with you because you're outside of generally confined ideas of who people are. Right. Mm -hmm. So in your case, when you look at people who have had experiences or who have seen things and they let it be known, they kind of step into that weird other category of, are you a normal person or have you seen stuff? And in that seen stuff for the general public might be, okay, you're kind of not really where we are talking about right now, but for other communities, you're fine. You know, you're, you're, you're one of us. We're all cool. Kind of a thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So it really defines on who's defining where you fit in the world kind of a thing. Um, and a lot of times for a lot of people, you could be stuck in that liminal, ambiguous, undefined, yet untouched role or status in society, you know? So if you happen to do things or see things or know things, that the general populace is not really comfortable with or not really familiar with, you're stepping outside their comfort zone and they don't really know where to put you. Yeah. So that's liminality in society where mm -hmm. we have, as you said, you, we have liminal stages of life. So you are not a child. You're not an <clears throat> adult. You're an adolescent. You're mm -hmm. in that in between stage. Um, there's also liminality of place. There's mm -hmm. liminality where you are not the earth, you are not the water, you're where the earth and the water meet on the shore. So the shoreline or a marshland 
is considered a liminal area. Right. Um, and then there's there's ideas of liminality between sea and sky when you're viewing, you know, the ocean and you can't tell quite where the sky ends and the ocean begins. And that that foggy weird area there is that's a liminal area. Um yeah, go. Right, because it's one of those weird we're not really sure what we should do with that place or what we should do or what we are allowed to or expected to do in that place because it may be one or the other or both. You know? Right. Right. And we're, and we're kind of in that you, who's defining it? How do we define this? You know, who's allowed to define this kind of a thing? You know. Yeah. And 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 of course what we consider liminal changes as society mm-hmm. changes. Um, liminal is a word that's used a lot in paranormal circles because, mm-hmm. you know, there's an understanding now that a lot of paranormal phenomena are, they're together. They, they are the same basic thing. They sort of ooze from one into another, like you got UFOs and aliens, and then you got and then you go, you know, you go over yeah. there and then there's balls of light and all of these other things and they all mm-hmm. kind of go together, but they happen at liminal times and in liminal places, mm-hmm. marshlands between the hill and the field, they, mm-hmm. you know, uh, above, you know, the, the sky above the sea is another place where all sorts of weird stuff happens. At and the edge of a forest. At the edge of the forest. Into, yep. So you can kind of see into the forest, but not exactly. It's in that weird transition state. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on with the whole transitional places. You know, yes. you're in a marshland. It's this and this. Or the edge of the forest. Well, you go in the forest, it's dark and scary, and no one knows what the hell's going on there. Or you're out in the field and it's open and fine and whatever, but it's in that weird transition state that it's kind of, it could be both, it could be none. It's in that weird, we're not really sure stage. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, in, in my case, a lot of the weird stuff that I have seen or experienced has happened in that, mm. well, it's right at the edge of the woods. And, mm-hmm. you, you know, when you first go into the woods, whether you're on a path or you're breaking through a, a, you know, a briar patch or whatever you're doing, you know, it, it, that's where it is. It's the weirdness tends to hang out there. It doesn't, it doesn't mm. hang out where you can see things, you know, right up in front of you. You have to, you know, kind of go, fog is liminal. Mm-hmm. Fog is not rain, not a cloud, mm. not a clear sky. It's it- all of it mixed together and there's that weird it makes what we know obscured so it could have been the same street or the same valley or the same thing we've seen a thousand times but because the fog moved in we get into that uncomfortable well what is down there what is in the fog Mm -hmm. i love that movie but you get the idea though of yeah you know it's a normal you know, field of, you know, grain or whatever else we, we've known for years, walked it for miles, yada, 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 and now there's fog. Well, things changed, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, you can you, almost... And you, could, you can ahead. get lost in the fog very, very easily. Oh, yeah. Even if you know where also, you are. Yeah. I was just adding on to your limitedly of space. 
think of liminality of time, twilight mm-hmm. and dusk. So, yep. you know, when is dawn? The, the, the cutoff for when night ends and day begins. Or when does the day end and night begin kind of a thing. And that violet hour kind of definition thing. That it's not exactly night, but it's obviously not day anymore. And it's that weird kind of hazy middle ground, you know? Right, right. There's still enough light to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't see clearly. Mm-hmm. And the color of the light is deceptive. Yeah. Um, you know, because we both come from Appalachia, so our twilight is usually pretty dramatic because the sun sets behind the hills fairly easily, but there's this yeah. glow that comes up and reflects mm-hmm. onto the sky. And you have these beautiful colors, and you can see it, but it, it's, it's very illusory. It doesn't feel quite real. And uh, I think that's that's one of my favorite parts of liminality is when you have something that looks very different. And and dawn mm-hmm. is the same thing. It's th- just the opposite. The sun is rising, but it's not um, risen all the way. And well, you, and usually you can't pinpoint and go, there it is. There's sunrise. You know, right? There a lot is, of religions night. will have to make that mark and say, when does dawn? officially start for the next day when does twilight officially or when does night start for the official thing so i know Mm -hmm. in some religions dawn doesn't officially begin until the first natural bird song so birds crows or uh uh uh, uh, chickens and stuff when that happens oh now it's officially dawn the -hmm. new day has begun Uh, up, up until then it could be technically brightening up but still in that vague, is it night, is it morning stage, you know? When you have a a, a diurnal bird sound is, mm-hmm. is when you... And then there's the weird midsummer nights that are mm-hmm. short. And yeah. the, the birds sing in their nests at night before there's even yeah. a you know, a, a hint of dawn up around the hills. There, it's not light at all, but you'll hear them singing. And yeah. I've some of my more weird experiences have happened in that time period where it's like three or four o'clock in the morning. Nowhere mm-hmm. near actual light dawn, but the birds are singing their midsummer right. songs. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's a really interesting time. And of course liminal beings tend to appear at liminal times and in liminal Mm -hmm. places Mm -hmm. so what we've talked about here we have liminal beings we have liminal places liminal times uh liminal seasons spring and fall are very liminal and all sorts of uh religious beliefs and um that sort of thing come about around those time periods. And uh, then we have liminal people, liminal humans, Mm -hmm. people who hold a liminal role in society. So there's all kinds of ways you can look at liminality. And what's interesting is lots of those things just fall in together. Mm -hmm. You're the other of a society. We don't really know where to put you. So, for example, if someone is 12 but not 13, they had to invent a term of tween 
for that weird state because you're no longer a kid, but you're not really a teenager yet, but you're kind of in the middle kind of a thing, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we have that weird, you can almost make the argument that the 18 to 21 year old stage, you're in college and you're technically an adult, but you can't drink and you can't do a lot of things that are considered adult things. So college age for those four years is kind of a weird liminal stasis in your life because you're not done yet. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a college student. You're not a high school student. You're not a, you're not an adult adult yet. You know, I mean, yeah, you can vote and, and everything else, but there's that weird. You're not done in that transformation. It's a four year process kind of a thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, the process of that education, it sort of is, is, it depends on the idea of extended adolescence mm-hmm. in a way. And, yeah. and we have discovered, of course, that human brains aren't finished cooking. You know, they, mm-hmm. they, they don't stop developing until about the age of 25, 26. And even then, brains are way more plastic than we thought they were even 10 yeah. years ago. Um, certainly, you know, 20 some years ago and when I was in college, which, yeah, which it, is, yeah, which <laughs> is where we start seeing rituals being, being used because you have to mark those transitions in life. You know, when is a girl, a woman? Well, that's a cultural definition established by a rite of passage for Latinos. It could be quinceañeras for American South culture. It would be a, a, a 16 cotillion party. You know, when does a guy become a man you know and that kind of weird you know rite of passage kind of a thing you know so depending on the time period that could have been did you go to war now you're a man you know (laughs) yeah and now for cultures that don't really have many rites of passage formalized at least you start dragging into the well when do you become a woman when do you become a adult male kind of a thing so they look for other markers to say, if you graduate college, yeah, you're basically an adult male. You're, you're a man. You know, you mm-hmm. graduate college, you're an adult female, you're a woman now, you know, right. because they're going to use another marker of process to fill in for that rite of passage kind of a thing, because we don't have it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of uh, the, the Western rites of passage were tied to the church. Um, mm-hmm. whether we're talking Catholic, which would have been the first church, mm-hmm. or we're talking Protestant or the Jewish temple, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of that. Um, the the madrasa for, for mm-hmm. the Muslim people, the temple for the Hindus, a lot of it is tied in with that. Um, mm-hmm. But in America especially, we kind of like, we don't need no stinking rituals. <laughs> we don't want yeah, those. You know. <laughs> And so large numbers of them were, you know, kind of taken out of circulation, as it were. But it used mm-hmm. to be that in the medieval period especially, there were all of these little rituals that everyone underwent that were either done in front of the church, on the church steps, or in the church. Right. And one of the ones we talked about yesterday um, was churching a woman after she gave birth. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was done in a, not only, she's in a liminal area, right? She just yeah. brought forth a child from wherever children are before they are born. A liminal mm-hmm. place. 
Um, mm. and, and she successfully gave birth. Um, she, right. she was also churched if she gave birth to a stillborn child. But, mm. but then it's different because yeah. I always thought, you know, one of the things they say is because a woman is given birth, she's unclean. But I think mm -hmm. it's also that birth is one of those times and places where things can go beautifully right and everybody lives or mm -hmm. it can go horribly wrong and somebody dies and so or both you know oh yeah and and especially before we had you know lots and lots of medicine that's just how it was mm -hmm. and so she kind of the the birthing woman was kind of between the gates of life and death mhm mm so and you think about um, the, the 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 process of her transforming from a wife to a mother Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's that weird, you know, she's six months, nine months, or whatever, pregnant, you know, but she's still someone's wife. She hasn't become that mother figure yet, mm -hmm. you know, and that whole process of going away, shooing the men out of the house, you know, all the women in the family came over to help with the birthing process and to help, you know, pull in the life into the world and keep the mother alive as well. You know, mm -hmm. it's also part of that process of we now have a new life. She has now gone from wife to mom or mother, depending how you look at it, kind of a thing. And then there's that weird transition of so now, even for the father, it's you're no longer just a husband. Now you're a father. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's a whole bunch of rituals involved in how that happens. And mm -hmm. when you mentioned the idea of churching a woman in that weird weird stage of I've delivered a child, but I haven't really gone back out in public yet. Mm -hmm. You know. Because you're recovering from the delivery, it's a very you know messy and arduous process, and you know dangerous to the woman's health, kind of a thing. She survives, the child survives. It may be weeks before she's ready to stand up and be seen as a person again, you mm -hmm. know. So the churching of the woman to clean her spiritually is also defining her as well. This was Mary the wife, and now she's Mary the mother, mm -hmm. you know. And, and it happens on the church steps, not in the church. It's right at the entrance of the church. Mm -hmm. So you're on the church grounds, so it's a holy place. It's sanctified, but it's not in the church itself. And then after mm -hmm. she's blessed by the priest, she can walk into the church with the baby, and then they have the christening of the baby yeah. inside the church. Um, we got on this topic. Bring in... yeah. yeah, yeah, we got onto this topic because um, you had attended a Rocking the Cradle ceremony, which is a totally new thing. Mm -hmm. And it's a Protestant um, ritual that has been essentially made up by this one church, but it's a beautiful thing, and it harkens right back mm -hmm. to the idea of presenting the child to the community in the church and right. saying, this, here's this child, it takes a village, we're the village, here mm -hmm. we are, we're going to bless the child, and there we are, we're going to do that. And it, it, it was really neat, because I was like, oh, it's like churching the mother and then christening the child. I, uh, yeah. I remember that from history. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was interesting because, I mean, they had family come in from, you know, from New York and from all over the place to come back to the church for the, for the presentation of this child to not only the families involved, but the church families involved. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the, the other family you might have, the ones you see every Sunday kind of a thing, you know. 
And the fact that it was done in this handmade cradle that had been passed down for at least four generations, you know, because mm-hmm. this was originally started back in the 50s, which is an interesting you know, idea that it was we're going to create this thing as a presentation of the child to the congregation. I can never figure it out so far why they started this. Like, what was the impetus to do this, you know, kind of a thing, mm-hmm. because other religions have christenings and baptisms and things like that so there's always a, already a process for this mm-hmm. and it didn't seem like we're marking the child as a sacred item now baptisms and christenings you know kind of a thing you know this was a presentation of the child not a transformation of the child mm-hmm. and i was like oh this is interesting because there was no anointing of or you know blessing of there was a lot of this is the child, we should take care of the child, that that family bond kind of a thing, mm-hmm. but an extended religiously based family bond. That's it was, really it was interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the things one of us brought up, I don't remember who it was in the room who brought it up, but it was like um Sleeping Beauty and the fairies at the christening and and people were saying things, you know, I hope this child has a good life. You know, and 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 everybody talking to the child and and wishing good things for the child. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody named Maleficent, I assume, appeared and caused all kinds of hate and consternation. No, that was my husband who was trying to define the concept to me and people he worked with. Was have you seen Sleeping Beauty when they have the child out there and all the fairy godmothers show up and bestow gifts to them? That's the presentation of the child. Like, this is the daughter, this is the child we're going to go see, kind of a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, I also was thought we're going to get horns and wings or something, you know? <laughs> what? Um, oh, I, your church is cooler than I thought it was. You know? Yeah, you know. But you got to wonder, though, I mean, this fulfills a role because it takes the, I heard there was a child named whatever she was named, but I've not seen the child. You've not brought the child to the church so that all of the members of the church can physically lay eyes on her and claim her as one of us, you know. But, you know, in today's society, everyone probably heard the child was born, you know, months ago on Facebook, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. It just took a while to arrange travel and organizations to make this ritual an actual possibility, you know. Right. So it's it's hearkening back to the old, but it's still new. I, I really mm-hmm. like it because it 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 brings us it brings us back around, you know. It's a it's a mm-hmm. it is a life passage, but it's not the one of the ones that we're used to, you know, because right. you know but I love that he likened it to sleeping beauty. <laughs> I would be curious I'm, I'm, I've, I've done some comparisons, and I found it in Baptist, Baptists and Pentecostals and uh, Presbyterians, and almost every of the Catholic religion or Christian religion still have presentation of the child in some mm-hmm. form or fashion, right? So my brain went, okay, well, do you see this in other religious groups? Is, it, is there a Jewish version of this? Is there a Muslim version of this? How have they accomplished this, here's the kid, you know, into a community kind of a thing. And what is their version of it? You know, do Buddhists have this? Do pagans have this? I mean, that, that would be an interesting little study kind of a thing. But it helps us as a community understand we're growing. 
we have new members, we have new responsibilities. It's kind of in a weird way making everyone kind of godparents in a way. Mm-hmm. Picks a village kind of a thing, you know. So Yeah, I, I that's kind of how I saw it. And and the, the mention of, of Sleeping Beauty, not even as, as the Disney version with Maleficent, mm-hmm. but you were presenting the child not only to the humans, you were presenting it to the others. Yeah. The spirits. And you were supposed mm-hmm. to invite them all. And, mm-hmm. of course, that's how they got into trouble, because they left out one of the fairies, and that was a bad yeah. idea. But that is that is something that, again, we, we come into that liminal space mm-hmm. that, you know, they, they allowed the spirits into the um, castle for Sleeping Beauty. They allowed yeah. the fairies in. So it wasn't in a church. Um, I think it's quite possible that in presenting a child at a Protestant church in the modern era is in a way you're presenting the child to the angelic presences that are invisible but are believed to be in the area. So you're, you're I guess, making sort of a bridge for the child into mm-hmm. a religion without, you know doing the official baptism at that time right <coughs> sorry yeah okay yeah sorry right <laughs> so drink another wrong tube <laughs> don't do that you, <laughs> you you drink the liquid breathe the air mm. so i are smart <clears throat> i know right so let's talk about liminal do you want to talk about liminal times and places or life transitions or people or what well we could go the rites of passage lets us go really easily into what other rites of passage are there within general society getting married is rite of passage having a child is a rite of passage because you're transforming the people involved and essentially that's all the rite of passage is you were one thing you are now another mm-hmm. rite of passage of marriage you were two individuals you are now a couple i now pronounce you husband and wife or husband and husband kind of a thing Mm-hmm. Um, I, you are, you are now a mother. You are now a father. Now that's going to change expectations and what we, society demands of you. Mm-hmm. But also later in life, you will have, I now, not really formally, I now pronounce you a widow or a widower mm-hmm. because you're not transforming the dead necessarily, but you have to transform the people who have survived into a different status. You know, you mm-hmm. are no longer child of X. You are now the child of someone who is dead. You know, right. they're, they're, no, they're no longer in the picture kind of a thing. Now, the, the dead person is also transformed partially. They, they This was a person, this is now a grave. And mm-hmm. that, that transition, you know, because you have the viewing and the funeral itself, and then you have the internment, and that's mm-hmm. two different rituals, two different ceremonies. Because you right. have one generally for the population who are there, and then the other is for the actual physical remains of the person, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And you the know. family that that remain at the gravesite. Right. So those kind of rites of passage, you think of there's rites of passage have to happen at certain times and certain places. You can't have a rite of passage. You can't have a funeral in someone's backyard. 
you know. Right. Because it doesn't have that sacred vibe to it. It has to be in a certain kind of place. Sometimes they're even at certain kinds of time. You know, depending on the religious group you belong to, you won't be able to have a funeral until the sun goes down. Right. And right. then I'm like, well, then, well, how do you bury the guy? You know, you can't bury it in the dirt, in the ground, or in uh, at, dark, at, at night, you know. Um, or the rites of passage in that liminal stage of person has died, but no one's there to pick him up and take him to the funeral home yet. So there's that process of staying with the body. Because mm-hmm. it was grandma, grandpa, and now it's not, but what is it? And we don't really, you know, some groups have the tradition of opening windows, let the ghost out, let the spirit out kind of a thing. Others would have the, we can't leave them alone. Someone's got to sit with the body until mm-hmm. they're taken away and processed kind of a thing. So there's that weird, they were a person five minutes ago. Mm-hmm. And now they're in that weird, they're not a person, they're... There, it's in that we're not really sure how to define this, you know, right. thing. Especially now that, especially in America, but it is similar in Europe, I'm sure, that we don't have a lot to do with death. We try mm-hmm. to avoid death. I'm not saying everybody in the past was running around, <laughs> death, yay! Uh, yeah. But we were confronted with it more often. You know, that it was a part of our lives, and it wasn't until near the end of the 19th century, the big turning point was the creation of embalming in the Western world um, as, a, as a needed process to have a viewing of the body. And, and really the, the, the thing that really made that popular was when Abraham Lincoln died. Mm-hmm. Um, he was one of the first, well, he was the first president who was embalmed and he was so iconic iconic and beloved by the populace that they you know they embalmed him and put him on a train and mm-hmm. you know went from washington up to springfield illinois where he was buried mm-hmm. and would stop at each you know town and mourners would line up and apparently they you know they would re-embalm him every time so that Just, he would stay yeah. looking mm-hmm. recognizable. And I think that's really, really interesting because before then, people pretty much took care of that at home. Yeah. They didn't have embalming, but you know, they washed the body. They mm. either uh, wrapped it in a shroud or sewed it in a shroud or dressed the mm-hmm. body. Mm-hmm. And then the body was put into the casket and then you sat awake with the body for three days and why was it three days you could make arguments because that's a religious institution three days of transformation mm-hmm. you know depending on how you play with it also there could be a functional reason for after three days stuff begins to stink mm-hmm. yeah know, benjamin franklin you know Guests and fish after three days both both stink kind of a thing, you know. Yeah. So it's that transformation thing of you've only got three days to make this happen, you know. Right. And three trinities and magic magic of numbers and you could you could go down the symbolic reasons for a long time, but functionally it's also after three days the word's gotten out. Hey, Bob is dead. We need to do this. Everybody thing. can gather. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the community has been notified, the body has been prepared, the grave has been dug. 
you know, the shock of Bob is now gone can be processed to we have work to do now. We have to we have to take Bob to his final resting point, you know. Right. And in three days, you don't want to stretch it out in that right that transformation because life has to continue. Mm-hmm. You know? And you can only interrupt life, especially in a very agrarian society, for so long. People got stuff to do. You know? Yeah. yeah. And I, it's it, almost like I would say that it's almost expected you can have your three days of mourning. You can have your three days of grief. You can have your three days of processing that you have now lost a loved one. But after three days, the life is for the living. We have to keep going. Mm-hmm. You know? So Now, of course, you know, the, you wear black for at least a year, you know, mm-hmm. in, in especially Victorian society in both England mm-hmm. and the United States. Um, especially if you're a widow, you wear black mm-hmm. until the years over 18 months in some cases um and and you you know you're you, there are certain things you're not allowed to do when you're in mourning you're not allowed to go to parties you're not allowed to dance you know, you know all those mm-hmm. things um because the mourning period by the victorian era literally had marked you with you are now a widow or you are now a widower and right. that's a very significant transformation because it's not three days and you're back to work. It's, it's you know, as you said, a year of I'm wearing my widow's reeds, you know, which is the clothing they wore kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the black the big cloth, veil whatever. And, yeah. So that there is no doubt you are a widow. You have lost someone in the family. You have lost, you know, a, a person and the entire society knows, oh, you've suffered a loss. I'm so sorry, you know, kind of a thing. Right. It's interesting that it was so long but there's a functional and symbolic element to that as well, because why would you want a woman or a man to be in mourning for a year after the death of, a, uh, of the spouse? Well, I mean, in with women and I think also with with widowers, so with widows, nobody could court you until you right. were you wore colors again. Mm-hmm. And there was, it wasn't like you wore black one, one day and then at 18 months, boom, the black was all gone and mm-hmm. you wore all your colors again. You, it was a yeah. process. Um, the Victorians had to do everything really um, complicated. They, they really loved the complicated stuff, which is cool. Um, so there were certain colors you could wear, you know, after mm-hmm. a year. So you could have like, say, purple or dark green or whatever. Um, right. And a little bit of white. And then after you're out of full mourning and you're starting to wear colors again, that's mm-hmm. when men can come and and speak to you in a mm-hmm. courtship level. Right. Um, and it's the same with, with widowers. They're allowed mm-hmm. to court after what was called a decent amount of time, which I think was <clears throat> like, you know, if he didn't have a, a whole house full of kids was between six and 12 months. Mm-hmm. And if he had a whole house full of kids, there was there was a lot of bending on that, you know, on that it's rule. A practical, yeah, it's a yeah, practical it, solution, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Because Until men then, at that time period. Would stay yeah. and take care of them. Yeah. Or they'd go live with grandma and grandpa mm-hmm. or whatever, you know. Or they'd spread them out amongst aunties and cousins and uncles and, mm-hmm. you know, everything like that. Um and you know the the whole uh, 
the whole community gathered around and, and helped with practical matters after a mm-hmm. death. You know, it's harvest time. We're going to help you harvest. I mean, we're mm-hmm. going to help you harvest anyway, but we're definitely going to help you harvest. And to this day, what do we do as soon as somebody dies and we hear about it? Mm-hmm. We bake a pie or a cake or a ham or we make uh, funeral potatoes, which are the best thing in the world and so full of fat and calories that if you're not dead it will take you to the grave if you eat well, too it's, much it's, of it there's a concept called the mourner's feast which i find very interesting because like you said the first thing you hear when you're going to have an actual in those three days everyone brings over food to the family who has suffered the loss both so that those who have suffered the loss don't have to worry about trying to get up and cook and feed themselves because they're still mourning you know Mm-hmm. But also for those who come, it's how do you feed a bunch of people who are showing up to my house kind of a thing, you know? Right. And the mourner's feast exists in almost every culture that I've ever read about mm-hmm. because it's that life is for the living. We have to keep the living alive, you know? Yes. And they would bring over beverages and food and, and you know, it was sort of like the village is taking care of you when you're out of the world. Because, right. you know, you just lost your spouse. You may not be, have the, the, the energy to get up and cook for your kids or cook for yourself or whatever, but you've got mountains of food to cover you for three days. You, yeah. you can do that. You can cover yeah. a little longer, too, you know? Yeah. Uh, I Yeah. I grew up with the, the Southern yeah, and lots of food, so much food, all the food. Um, oh, yeah. And in, in Jewish tradition, when you sit Shiva for seven days, mm-hmm. people bring food. Mm-hmm. Um and instead of opening the windows, they they cover the mirrors in Jewish tradition Interesting. because it keeps the spirit from being trapped. Yeah. In the, yeah. They see themselves and they'll stay there. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that in some Buddhist traditions, you're not supposed to weep mm-hmm. very much openly near the body or in the house where the, the death occurred because the spirit might hear you and stay. Right. Um, so, you know, there's all of these traditions that, that have to do with the spiritual side of things, but so many of them also have practical considerations, like the feast. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and it, it also allows you to remember the person, mm-hmm. not just the body. So mm-hmm. when you are feasting, when you are drinking ale, when you're drinking cider, you can say, oh, remember when uh, she went to the, to the, to the, you know, uh, to, to let the cows in and, and she couldn't see real well because it was, it was foggy and she slapped this mm. cow that was leaning against the gate to get it out of the way and it wasn't a cow, it was a bear, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is actually a you're story. Telling, <laughs> you're telling the stories of that. Because also, in, in a very interesting way, the house itself is transformed. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you open the windows, you cover the mirrors. So in that process of mourning, this is not just a house. This is a house in mourning. And there mm-hmm. are rules and, and expectations of what you can and can't do. Because you don't want little kids running around playing in a house in mourning. 
take the right. kids outside. Let let them go outside, kind of a thing. You know, we're, mm-hmm. we're having a very serious moment right now. Let the kids go outside and play in the backyard, not in the house. You know. Yeah. You would see black wreaths or or black somethings put over door frames to alert the public this is a house in mourning. And yeah. after however long it happened, then it would be a big process of oh now we're going to take the things off the mirrors, we're going to close the windows and take the wreaths down. That was all of the symbols of this house is in mourning because even the house, the physical property transformed. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, And, you know, it's one of those, we see those rituals of transformation over and over of you were this and now you're this, and then now you're something else. And if we didn't have those, what is this place? You know, if someone died in a house alone and they took the body out, and there was no one there to open the windows and cover the mirrors and do all those practices. It remains in that community as the house where old Ed died. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. It was never transformed either into a house of mourning or out of a house of mourning. It's just now the creepy old house at the end of the block where Ed died. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's and... where you get the beginnings, perhaps, of the haunted house stories mm-hmm. that, that rise up when you have abandoned houses. Because no one was there to complete that process. Right. You know, and no one was there to literally sweep out the cobwebs and clean the house out or up or whatever else and make it potentially a house or a home for someone else. For the living. For the living. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, I know there's whole professions of people that go in. Ed died. He lived alone. He has massive tons of stuff. The family doesn't want it. Now what? You know, we have to get rid of this house or do something with the house because the community doesn't want old abandoned house forever. So right. the city has had to take on that role of, okay, we'll have people go in and they'll do a, a an estate sale or get rid of the things in the house and yeah. empty the trash and turn it from creepy old place where Ed died to potentially a new home for a new family. We have to yeah. make that transition, you know, because yeah. we don't like that house not being transformed completely. So it's a liminal state at that point. Yeah. Yeah. It's still the place where the death occurred and Mm -hmm. not a place where life can go on. Right. See, we're back to the liminal again. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's that's really interesting. And, And when you talk about all of these rituals, you know, some of them aren't even religious anymore. It's no. more cultural or it's mm-hmm. it's what we do to um, it, for ourselves, for the living, for mm-hmm. you know, for us to say goodbye, let go, like the idea of viewing the corpse. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a big one for viewing the corpse because as mm-hmm. soon as death happens, I can't see the person anymore because the the spirit has left. And I've been like that since I was a child. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my mother is one of those people who has to see the body to get it through their, their understanding that this person is dead. They need that Mm -hmm. finality. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, she's always, (laughs) you know, dragged me up to the, to the dead person. and, And she's like, just, don't doesn't he look like himself or whatever it is she says and and i'm like well no not really 
and she's well she's like well they're dead i'm like well yes i know (laughs) i kind of knew that before you did (laughs) oddly enough um i had an uncle die um a few weeks ago and we went down for the funeral kind of a thing and i it, it was something that i noticed without really realizing that this was a requirement of the viewing was that there had to be someone of his immediate family standing up by the casket mm-hmm. so that when you went up to view, you had someone to talk to and say, you know, it's been a long time and I'm really yes. sorry that he's gone. And to make all those essentially offerings and condolences to the person who's dead without making it to the person who's dead. You're not talking yes. to a dead person kind of a thing. Yes. You know, you're talking to the wife or the daughter or the son or what have you, you know, and you try to make it light and, and as much as you can. And there's lots of hugs and crying and whatever else, you know, but it's that there's a specific, specific role of the person who has to stay up there and be that receptacle for all of the condolences, well wishes and, you know, Oh, I found this that reminded me of your father. And, you know, she had an armload of stuff by the time the viewing was over with before the actual funeral began. Mm -hmm. And it was, in my mind, I'm like, this is the offering of grave goods to someone who's dead. Yes. But they can't let, they won't let you put it in, you know, in modern times, they won't let you put it in the coffin. So it's given to the family. Right. You know, and I'm like, oh, interesting that you have not only there's a specific role to play for you know the person who's dead but also now of the family that they have to be up there to be that person to receive the well wishes and condolences and and what have you Mm -hmm. um and she was in in a very weird way looked at as a special person because she was the eldest of his children or the spouse or or the whatever it might be you know right she's like in a weird way, and in some cultures, they call that the speaker of the dead. They mm-hmm. speak for the person who died. They're the one who's there to guarantee their wishes, to make these things all happen, you know. And they're given a special status for that, exa- for the ritual of the funeral and interment and, and whatever else, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, interesting, you know. And I don't know if, if I ever put those two together before, but, you know, big families, people die all the time. And I'm like... Oh yeah, you've got. There's always been someone. Oddly enough, they've almost always been women, um, because the guys, the husbands or the sons, wouldn't be the person up there if they they were the pallbearers. Yeah, they were the pallbearers. That's why. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do remember the the funeral of my grandmother, uh, one of my cousins who is female, mm-hmm. <laughs> offered to fight her brother and uncles. And and all because she wanted to be a pallbearer, she wanted to carry grandma, mm-hmm. and and they let yeah. her because well, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have fought her. Um, yeah, and and I thought that it was ridiculous to even try. Um, mm-hmm. She felt that strongly about it. Then there you go. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting Going- though is. Pallbearers are also in a sort of liminal state themselves. Mm-hmm. They carry the dead mm-hmm. in their casket or their coffin, mm-hmm. and then they help lower it into the grave at the internment. And it used mm-hmm. to be that sometimes they helped dig the grave. Yeah. And then you had the liminal roles, of, you know, in communities for um, funerals. 
that we don't have anymore, the sin eaters, mm-hmm. who that's a that's I think it's generally Scottish or Irish or both, but I mm. think I've also heard of them in British villages as well. But it's someone who consumes the sins of the dead person in the form of a piece of bread that's laid mm-hmm. on the coffin of the dead person. Yeah. And they eat it and then they leave. They leave the yeah. funeral and take the sins with them before the body is is interned. And what's interesting is they tended to be someone who lived at the edge of town. Mm-hmm. They were kind of an outsider. And it was almost always somebody who was old. Mm-hmm. And it was always a man. I don't know yeah. why, but I haven't seen where it, w- it was a woman. Older women who lived at the edge of town had other roles that they right. played. You know, they helped wash the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and often they were midwives, too. So they were there at the beginning yeah. and at the end. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, liminal. We got them at the edge of the woods, you know, at the very edge of town. And you figure that the Sin Eater concept, the Sin Eater role, could have easily dovetailed into the modern concept of the funeral directors and personnel and whatever else, because they're there to facilitate the transition of body to the grave, you mm-hmm. know? And even though they may not be taking a piece of bread off the off the, of the body kind of a thing, but they're an essential part of that transition. And because of that, society has said, yes, we need you, but we're not inviting you to the picnic. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's, people have weird ideas about um, morticians or mm-hmm. undertakers. Undertakers are, I didn't know this until, you know, yesterday, that undertakers <laughs> and morticians are not the same thing. Undertakers right. were the ones who undertook to care for the body after um, the the transition from uh, family members washing mm-hmm. the body and preparing it for burial. They would undertake to do that, and mm-hmm. then they would take it in a carriage. So they were the ones that created the whole hearse idea, the special carriage with the black horse, um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, the, the car with the you know large space in the back the black car with the mm-hmm. with the windows and and all of that so that's what an undertaker was and i Versus, assumed yeah a mortician who is the one who makes the dead presentable mm-hmm. you know they carry them away from the house mm-hmm. to the funeral home which is mm-hmm. an american invention um, mm-hmm. or a funeral parlor, which is actually the first name for yeah. it, because where yeah. where did we set the dead before we laid them in the parlor of their home where yeah. they died, mm-hmm. and either casket open or casket closed, that's where people sat and sat vigil for three mm-hmm. days. And the spiritual version, uh, the reason for the three days, um, because there's always the practical and then there's the spiritual is yeah. is because the spirit doesn't know that it's gone. Oh yeah, yeah, into, yeah, yeah, yeah. into death, so mm-hmm. you have to wait and give them a chance to get the idea that they're the shock they're, of death. Yes, yeah, 
it's time, especially if they died in a in a sudden way. They weren't sick for a long time. There was an accident or you know something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, that was the that reason. And then there was also the reason because uh, medical examiners weren't like you know great back in the day. People could look dead and then wake yeah. up, and it still happens yeah. occasionally. So right. you also wait three days to make sure you're not burying grandma alive because mm-hmm. that's really uncool to do. You cannot. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so that's, you got to do well, that. So when you look at things like um, the funeral directors and funeral, those associated with death, you mm-hmm. know, on any level. So morticians, um, the, uh, the medical examiners, the people that are in that process of, I will take the body, either determine how they died or process them for internment or something else. They're that odd other category of people and professions because you find out, oh, I'm a lawyer. Okay, that's not the best in the world, but eh, okay, you can come to the picnic. <laughs> yeah. I'm a mortician. Do not talk about work. Yeah, you, you, can't, you, you are not you, allowed to bring that element yeah. to, the, yeah. to the moment. And everyone knows who you are. Everyone knows what you do. And they need you as an element of society to do that role. But no, you don't. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You and, don't talk about it. You know, I mean, it's, it was I bad really, enough with a friend of mine who's a veterinarian. He and I would talk, you know, mm-hmm. in a restaurant at dinner. And, you know, then, you know, people around us would be getting quiet and be like, no, oh, yeah, we don't need to talk about the internal organs of a dog. Okay, we'll be quiet now. But, yeah, Yeah. similar with with you just can't talk about that. And so there's this mystery that surrounds it now, Mm -hmm. too. Yeah. Imagine you're the kid of the family growing up in a funeral home. It's not like you're going to have sleepovers. It's not like you're going to have friends over to play in the funeral home because funeral homes are places of respect and yeah. they have literally been defined as this place is only for these actions. You know, yeah. the average everyday living of a family might happen next door or out back, you know, yeah. um, or upstairs. Yeah. And they have defined downstairs is for work, upstairs is for the family kind mm-hmm. of a thing. But can you imagine someone having a sweet 16 party at a funeral home? Mm, no, you know, no, I can and definitely imagine renting a hall for that <laughs> or a gorgeous house. Friend's house or an aunt's you know, house or yeah, big gorgeous house, lots of room, but wrong place, you know? Yeah. And yeah. It, we don't even have to explain why it's the wrong place. And they don't even have to explain why it's the wrong place. Mm-hmm. We know automatically that place is not where these things should happen. You yeah. know? Yeah. <clears throat> And, and, and some people, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Some people who are interested in, you know, uh, following that profession or not interested in following that profession, kind of a thing. They're like, no, mom and dad did that, or dad did that, or uncles did that, and I'm really not involved. Not wanting to get in that profession, I may have been in there growing up, and it might have been like, yes, I carried wire for my dad as an electrician, but. Not so much, you know, yeah, because yeah, that's a completely it's a different, thing. different, yeah. You and know, you're going to be labeled immediately. You're the kid who weird or yeah. outside, you know, yeah, an outsider or a weirdo. Um, mm. and and it's to me, it feels really sad 
and it, and it speaks to me of American culture's unwillingness to integrate death mm. back into, you know, life. Mm -hmm. But that that is the big, yeah, that is the big separation. That's the big liminal space right there. Mm -hmm. That is the biggest one for those of us who are in, you know, I don't know, flesh carriages, you know, or, you know, we, we are embodied in matter. Mm -hmm. And eventually we are going to be disembodied from matter. Mm -hmm. And that transition is that's the big one and that's where paranormal stuff happens um it's it's like you know there's so many stories of you know someone died and it was right before the sun came up mm -hmm. you know someone died and it was the darkest hour of night mm -hmm. you know it, it there's always it's the liminal place it's the liminal mm -hmm. time it is the liminal person the liminal activity mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um the liminal work of dying that is something that the body itself does and you know uh there's a new profession coming about called a death doula mm -hmm. which i think is wonderful because the the birth doula has been mm -hmm. a, a real help to birthing people um, mm -hmm. for the past, you know, 20 something years when it first started back up. Doula means um, one who serves, one who, yeah. who cares, one who helps. It's a yeah. Greek word. And, you know, they're not a nurse midwife. They're mm -hmm. basically there to hold the woman's hand, help whoever the other support person is for the, for the mm -hmm. person giving birth. And mm -hmm. also to speak for the person giving birth. Because I can tell you, after having two kids, th there's not a lot that can come out of the mouth Yeah. in the middle of that particular process. Again, another mm -hmm. liminal space right there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's all about birth, death, and rebirth. It's a big mm -hmm. circle of life. Uh, you know, cue the Lion King and all that. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's about you know, her, that person's ability to take on the role of the birthing person and being the voice of the birthing person mm -hmm. who's too busy right now screaming oh, yeah. <laughs> at the top of their lungs to say, no, I don't want an episiotomy unless it's absolutely yeah. necessary. You, you can't, those, those sentences are too long. Best mm -hmm. you're going to get is no, <laughs> honestly. Well, think about in, in historical times, that role probably would have been filled by someone's aunt. Not mm -hmm. the mother of the kid, the brother, the woman having a, uh, a child because she's right she's there too holding, busy holding her, her up. daughters. Yeah, yeah. But it's like you know the aunts that would have been okay. We'll get this. We'll make sure this. You know, they're the extra pair of arms and and minds and and mm -hmm. you know, no, we're not doing this kind of a thing. Which is why a lot of times birthing was a very separate, sacred, generally women's only event. Yeah. Because you know. They know it's going to be messy. They know it's going to be seven kinds of painful. They know you need more hands on deck, but not that many hands on deck, you know, kind of mm -hmm. a thing. Just to be able to make sure that happens, you know. Yeah. And now with the death doula, which essentially is, in, in a weird way, almost the midwife, but not exactly the midwife for a funeral, you yeah. know. 
the midwife of they're, death. They're essentially the aunt. Oh, so and so, you know, so and so died. I'll I'll step in, basically be the woman who was your aunt or your mother's sister or or even your sister kind of a thing, and help be the voice of you when you have no voice. Mm-hmm. You know, and they are also there to help the dying person transition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. I know I sat with my grandmother as she was dying. And let me tell you, that was that was a very liminal thing. That was a liminal time. It was a liminal place. Yeah. I remember there was something about... Okay, so during COVID, a lot of the nurses that were on, you know, sort of a death watch for so-and-so, because they didn't have enough nurses to go around. So right. they were pulling in volunteers. We don't want Harold... Alone, alone in an, in this in this last few hours of, of life kind of a thing. So literally anyone could volunteer and come in and sit with that person and get a hold of a nurse if something's going on or just be with them in their last hours because people were dropping like flies and the nurses had to be not to be callous about this, but they had to be where the living was and they had mm-hmm. to help the living. You know, we they needed did more as much bodies. as they could. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we need someone to be there while this person is transitioning out of life, you know. Yeah, there were so, a lot of support people from the hospital mm-hmm. who basically took the part of a death doula at that time. Yeah. So, you know, uh, janitors, um, mm-hmm. people who had worked in uh, even registration and administration mm-hmm. jobs. Mm-hmm. They started working, the, you know, they suited up. And held yeah. people's hands, you know, because that how terrible is that to not have anybody, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you can but see them on a screen, but yeah, yeah, or talk to them on a phone and, and the facilitation of is there anyone you want to call, you mm-hmm. know, because they can't come to you. They can't step in the room with you. COVID to thing kind of thing. So facilitating that transition you know, Mm -hmm. is an interesting time because you are not trained half the time. You're just a person, but Mm -hmm. society needs you in that position. Like nurses who are trained to extend and facilitate life, they got other things going on. You know, they're trying to, they're trying to save as many people as they can. Yeah. They're they're trying to, and you see yeah. that weird trade-off of, okay, we need someone to watch Ed. We need someone to watch Henry. We need someone to watch. We can't do it. We are up to our eyeballs. You know? And we can't let and, their families in. And Right. Yeah. So we had we have, we have a need, but our society didn't really have anyone to fulfill that need within a sense. So we have to make it up as we go along. But the need was there. You know, we mm-hmm. need someone to be able to sit with Henry while he's transitioning. It may take four hours or four days. Who knows? You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, the, it, with my grandmother, she died at home. So mm-hmm. it was it was all relatives. Right. Um, and we took turns sitting up. Mm-hmm. Um, I sang to her. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a point where a light was in the room like in the corner mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. at first i really honestly thought that i was just tired and yeah. you know i was 17. Mm-hmm. my mom was asleep in the room and i really knew that it was really there as it got brighter and brighter and it was bright enough to wake my mother up mm-hmm. and at that point i knew okay it is really there and it is yeah. what i think it is 
So, you know, she said, what's that light? And I said, Mama, go back to sleep. It's just the angel of death. That's Mm -hmm. who it is. Just And for once in her life, she didn't argue, and she went right back (laughs) to sleep. Um, But, you know, that was was a very... uh, sacred moment and it was it was very strong and then you know i was with a friend of mine as she was dying she was on a ventilator Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. a hospital and she had opened her eyes when i first arrived and it was the first time she had reacted to Mm -hmm. anyone Mm -hmm. um and she reacted to her partner and me standing next to her and both of us speaking to her at the same time so she knew that we were mm-hmm. both there and it was okay. Yeah. I was sitting in there and you know, her partner had been, you know, 48 hours up and awake and talking mm-hmm. with her. And I, I, I told her, go, go to sleep. Just go to sleep. I'm here. This is the woman and, that I saw, right? Yeah. Yeah. Got it. This is the one that you, you met at the, at the graduation party. Yeah. Um, Although she wasn't actually at the party, but she was in Athens and you met her before the party. Yeah. So, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm talking with her and I'm singing to her and it's in the ICU. There are Mm -hmm. two young nurses there um, and they were talking very quietly amongst themselves. And one of them came in to check on all of the machinery. um, Mm -hmm. And I stopped talking and she said oh you can keep talking i said Mm. yeah i just kind of feel funny because i'm talking up at the ceiling because she's not in she's up there and she said oh honey you don't have to tell us that (laughs) we know and that's that's when the other one piped up and said we've seen things we know oh yeah you know we know that that she's not in her body right now yeah. And so, you know, that was another but it, it was it was a different thing. You know, she was mm-hmm. watched over by these two nurses who were mm-hmm. tending the equipment that was keeping her body functioning. Mm-hmm. And um You could make the argument that I see new ICU nurses that have seen things have are are also in that weird you're not just a nurse. You're an mm-hmm. ICU nurse. You're a hospice nurse. You've mm-hmm. seen things that others... I mean, you know, trauma nurses see gunshot wounds, and that's a different kind of experience, but they see stuff that society's not yet ready to acknowledge, mm-hmm. you know, where they've seen a light, or they've seen, yeah, he just died. How do you can tell? Because I saw him... I saw the uh, the light go out, or the whatever it might be, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a thing. And everyone's like, uh, you mean you saw, and, and, and our society now is we don't really know how to process that because we have been so separated from death, you know? Mm-hmm. So only certain categories of people are exposed to that and have knowledge of that. And in a weird way, that's, oh, we talked about this before, it's that access to the forbidden or the unspoken knowledge. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and because they're so close to that forbidden unknown other knowledge society's not exactly sure how to deal with them because they have contact with a place a time locations yada 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 that we generally don't have you know mm-hmm. most people will you know might go through the death of a loved one a couple times in their lifetime they go through that in a day 
or every week, day sometimes. You know? Yeah, you know, you know, every week, especially every during day. especially during COVID. Yeah. Um, the the people that were sitting with the ICU patients and you know facilitating the phone calls to loved ones and stuff. It's interesting hearing that after they died, the person who was helping them transition, kind of a thing, kind of became adopted by the families. Mm-hmm. You were with Ed or Henry in his last few hours, and we're so grateful we couldn't be there because of COVID and blah blah blah. Would you like to come to his funeral? We would like to meet the person who was there facilitating that yes. process, and you held his hand and you made him comfortable, you know, in this last hours kind of a thing. And it's this weird that would have been a family role or a family member's role in traditional society, but because it was just a volunteer. It was a national it, crisis kind of a thing. Yeah. So, but our, but our brain says you're connected to us somehow now. Yeah. You were yeah. there with Henry. You were you're facilitating that thing. That's what a family member does. So, congratulations, you've now been adopted. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and I they get it. That makes me feel better about humanity mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we there is a part of us that still understands that that mm-hmm. that. If you are there at the sacred moment of birth or death, that mm-hmm. you are part of that family, mm-hmm. of that passage, you, you facilitate it, that means you are touched by the liminal place mm-hmm. where spirits come and go. Yeah. You know, it's... And... it's yeah. <laughs> where the 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 light becomes flesh or the flesh mm-hmm. becomes light becomes light and and you goes... think like in in old uh, rural communities the old country doctor that was probably the first face that everyone saw when they were coming out of their mom kind of a thing probably mm-hmm. before they saw their mom was given this almost heroic status of you're the guy that brings the community to life kind of a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And if anything happens, you call old doc, you know, more or whatever to come help, you know, cause mm-hmm. someone got injured. And if he can't help, and this is like, all I can do is make them comfortable for their last few hours, get the family here, have them say their goodbyes. Cause there's nothing else I can do. He, or depending on she would have fulfilled their role of I'm here to bring life into the world or to ease the transition out of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And then the other person comes in, oh, you figure the doctor probably knew the undertaker or the funeral director mm-hmm. or, you know, and it was sort of like they were, you know, they, you know, they got together and talked and had mm-hmm. coffee. And because oh, yeah. they both had access to that other knowledge of life and death kind of, yeah. thing, you know. And, and especially here in Appalachia, it, often the the doctor or the midwife, as you mm-hmm. say, was also the one who was there at the end, mm-hmm. because we didn't have a lot of a lot of people here, you know, and yeah. it was hard to travel. And mm-hmm. I mean, even up into the twentieth century, there were places that you, there were no trains, you know. Yeah. There's a segment on um, Sesame Street from the 1970s. And mm-hmm. it's a man on horseback, an old man mm-hmm. on horseback. Mm-hmm. He's got a, a, a pinto horse, and he's delivering the mail in mm-hmm. Appalachian, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. He's riding up the haulers, 
into these places that don't have running water or if they do, mm. it's from a well. You know, yeah. they don't have central heating. You see these people and, you know, I was alive when when mm. this was happening. You know, they didn't mm. do the filming in the in the 1950s. They did it in the 70s when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was like, oh, wow, you know, <laughs> I've been to some of those places and, you know, just outside of the city limits of Charleston, there were people that lived in places like that. And mm-hmm. there was no way to get to them. So whoever could get to them for birthing was mm-hmm. also probably whoever could get to them when someone was sick or when someone mm-hmm. was dying. So yeah. that's... And you think... The old role of the healer, I'm here to ease pain, to bring life, or to facilitate the very gentle transition to death. You know, mm-hmm. there's a number of accounts of doctors prescribing, over, over prescribing medication, just let them sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, and we know that they're going to die within the next couple hours or, or whatever else, but the injuries are untreatable with our technology at that time period or in those location. So I'm going to be here to make that transition easier, you know, which we have also changed because now doctors can't facilitate the ease of transition into death because you have to fight for life and insurance and everything else, you know? Yeah. So it makes you wonder of, you know, with today's society of how that access to the forbidden slash otherized knowledge of life and death, you know, how that can affect people. You know, I see you nurses. I've seen death that would freak you out. I've seen things that should never have happened. Oh, mm-hmm. why don't you tell me? It's no different than I seen a UFO. I saw Bigfoot. I saw lights. It's yeah. that I have seen where I've been exposed to knowledge. The general population is not really ready for mm-hmm. because they've not been indoctrinated to it. You know, there yeah. is no, process now by which we can be indoctrinated to it people just stumble onto the stuff yeah. you know yeah people and i mean it, it... that's part of the the birth or the death doula movement in a way is to kind mm-hmm. of rehumanize death mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. help ease our society back you know because w- when we decided we weren't going to deal with death directly we also mm-hmm. decided we weren't going to deal with, you know, how meat was processed directly. All of this stuff kind of, yeah. you know, we just we just decided everything had to be clean, sanitary, and shiny in mm-hmm. America and corporatized. And it, it just made everybody's life more convenient, easier, and better. Mm-hmm. But it, I don't know, it, it kind of infantilized humans. We didn't, we didn't have that same connection with each other as we had before we didn't have connection in a weird with way, our food with yeah, our there's a our families it 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 messed things up there's an expression in ritual studies of you can't uneat the apple once <laughs> you have tasted of the knowledge you can't un, un, untaste it you can't unsee it you have seen these things these are these are real to you you know and once you start seeing patterns and processes and things like that, the problem is now for a lot of people, what's an apple? Yeah. Do I even want to know where, where we're going with that? You know, mm-hmm. look at your research and people just stumble upon without 
kind of getting any kind of indoctrination to, by the way, if you, well, using the example, in Appalachia, if you hear your name in the woods. Yeah. There's a dozen indoctrinations into, no, you didn't. You know, you don't, don't whistle listen. in the woods. You know, you don't whistle in the woods. You don't do these things. Don't be knocking on the walls, yada, yada, yada. If you because, hear whistling in the woods, don't, don't, yeah. don't, don't say anything. Don't act like you heard it. You know, it's almost but like never run from an immortal. It only draws their yeah. attention, you know. But that kind of indoctrination is a more rural phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, grandma or grandpa might tell you, don't be doing that in the woods now. And why? Things will happen to you. Oh, mm -hmm. okay. You have knowledge I didn't know existed because no one's telling me about this. You know, right. you're in a more urban or even suburban environment. No one has that knowledge to pass down, you know, but yeah, uh, you're yeah. in a more rural, more Appalachian or more rural society. That's just, you pick it up as you grow up. That yeah. mom tells you and dad tells you and grandma tells you, and that's just how the world works. You know, um, it's kind of like I was telling you, can you smell the rain before it comes? Mm -hmm. And you get to some people, they're like, what the hell are you talking about? And others in a more rural environment. Oh yeah, sure. My uncle can do it. Or my dad can do it. My mom can do it. You know, and it's, it's more expected, more accepted. I would say in a more rural community, because they say how farming, you know, mm -hmm. that you would be able to tell the rain's coming before it comes. Okay. Go to an urban environment, go to a suburban environment. Is that sensory ability even there? Has anyone well, ever explained it, you know? The thing about doing it in an urban environment, and I didn't think about this when we were talking about it last night, was the smell of petrichor is mm -hmm. not the smell of the rain itself, and mm -hmm. it's not the smell of the surface it strikes. Mm -hmm. It's the smell of the layers of bacteria and fungi that lay mm -hmm. on the top of soil. Mm -hmm. that are then aerosolized by the rain. And that's what right, you smell. So in urban areas, you don't have as much mm -hmm. of that being stirred up, so you can't mm -hmm. smell it on the wind as easily. Right. So you're, you're, you can smell it when it happens, but you can't yeah. smell it from miles away. And that's what you're, you're picking up on, is you're picking up on the smell of rain that has already happened Right. Five miles down the road kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And you know it's coming kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's that weird sixth sense of, yeah, storm's coming. You can smell it. You can see it. You can feel it. You know, whatever else. But that kind of knowledge, sure, very common, you know, in, in a more rural society because we'll talk about that kind of a stuff, you mm -hmm. know. And, you know, um, what else? You know, again, if you're walking through the woods and you hear your name, no, you didn't, you know. Yeah. Yeah, how many TikToks um, are about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or, um, oddly enough, one of my students told me this one time, that if you're walking through the woods and you smell cucumbers, no, you didn't. You're smelling a rattlesnake. Yeah, yeah. Because they have that musk smell. But mm -hmm. it's a sensory input that you wouldn't even pick up on and know what that means in an urban or suburban environment unless you have the country roots because grandpa said if you walk through the woods and smell cucumbers no you didn't stop what you're doing nobody planting them out there you know? <laughs> yeah exactly you know but that's a familiarization with topics and knowledges that are just not widely disseminated in certain elements mm -hmm. of culture where you yeah get because the rural they don't areas they don't serve purposes anymore yeah like they might tell you 
don't go down that hollow. Why? Just don't go down that hollow. Yeah. And you're like, why? Because dot, 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 you know. Yeah. Um, which is where you start seeing stories of haunted hollows or yeah. bad places where things happened, you know. Um, that hollow always has fog year round. We don't know why. Okay, there could be a, a number of meteorological things, but everyone knows don't go down there. Yeah. You know. I mean, so. it could just be, you know, the the very sensible if there's fog down there, you can't see, you get you you lose your footing, you fall down in the ravine and that's it, you're done. You yeah. know. Or you're gone very, for an extra twelve hours and then we have to go and haul your butt out of there and yeah, right. great. We told you, didn't we tell you? We told you don't to go there, you know. <laughs> it's a very practical step with a lot of symbolic overtones because they may not know necessarily what's going on. They mm -hmm. just know, yeah, don't go do don't do that. Just just go down that road, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um anybody who lives in any kind of rural area, there's there's practical and spiritual aspects to all of those those cautionary you know sayings you know don't mm -hmm. don't go to that hollow uh if you hear your name don't answer um mm. and it's funny because uh well you you've had the experience of hearing your name and yeah <laughs> you knew better but, but <laughs> you all of that went out of your head and yeah. so it's it one of those things you can't moment. even yeah you can't even look at someone and go you big dummy would you do that for because yeah. it's when it actually happens and i was there to watch it happen with you mm -hmm. um it it shocks people yeah and there's always you know the possibility that you're hearing something that sounds like a family member Mm -hmm. what's for me kind of a thing yeah yeah or that you hear no business hearing someone like that in athens county ohio you know there's just no way yeah but my brain didn't re didn't register it rationally or logically it was oh gotta go wait a minute wait, 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 wait. you know <laughs> no 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 you don't no sit nope 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 it's like if you heard here. your mom say your full name oh my god i'm in trouble without ever thinking you could be a grown adult you hear your parents yeah. say your full name. You have that instinctual reaction. And it was kind of like that. I'm kind of like, I know rationally this is not a thing. Rationality, rational thought went out the window. Yeah, not when very I many that, of us were like, very rational. Uh, you know, it was <laughs> yeah. just, oh, okay, what the hell, you know. But we were in a liminal space. At in a liminal, liminal time, time. You know. So he and... was at the he was at the graduation party that, that we've spoken of. So... Yeah. Yeah. Everybody had slightly different experiences at that time. And his was, he heard his name. And it wasn't just his name. It was a nickname that only one person used that none of us knew about. Yeah. And so, I was thinking, I mean, like my girlfriend at the time wouldn't have known it. No one in the, in the group we were in would have known it. But it sounded like it was from actually like my grandfather and he was off in the woods. And I'm kind of like, what? And it was almost a knee jerk gotta go was your you grandfather know. dead at the time no he was still alive but okay he was, he was southern ohio he was hours and hours away you know yeah but if he would have yelled that in uh if i was in the area that would have get your butt here now you know mm -hmm. that's that kind of impetus kind of a thing it's like again your mom says your first name or your full name kind of a thing you know 
It was also interesting growing up. Rarely ever would anyone yell a name to get your attention. They would whistle. Mm-hmm. They would, you know, they they would do something, but they wouldn't necessarily yell my full name or anyone's full name um, because that was considered almost good luck or almost too much of an emergency kind of a thing. Yeah. Because you'd be running so fast, your 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 feet are hitting you in the butt because yeah. you're trying to break the speed barrier to get back and find out what happened. You know, yeah, and it was that level of immediacy, and I'm like, but they knew my name. Yeah, they. Yeah, you kept saying knew that. my name. You kept yeah. saying that. I yeah, that was that was very very disturbing, but again, it was all kinds of liminal weird crap was happening at the edge of the woods, and there was fog, and there were. <laughs> it was a graduation party, and we hadn't in, invited all of them. It mm-hmm. was probably my mistake. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't drink, so you didn't understand. But yeah. after they appeared, none mm. of our alcohol seemed to have any effect on us whatsoever. <laughs> it's like they sucked the alcohol out of it. Mm-hmm. And we're like, yeah, fine. Drink yourself, silly. You're not going to get anything out of it. Mm. And, uh, yeah, that was exciting. That and the, It's also... That moment or the, that event was interesting because you said there were so many crossroads of otherness, you know, mm-hmm. edge of the forest, the fog, the tr- stars were weird. You know, it was a graduation party. So commemorating a transition from you were a student to know you're in a, you know, not a student kind of a thing. Right. You know, um, and it was like, were we essentially putting a bunch of building blocks together and then, oh, looky, it, it happened, you know? Mm-hmm. In a very weird, I'm not really sure, you almost, I wouldn't say purposefully, but you laid all the tools out in front of them and just said, go play. Like, mm-hmm. without even realizing it, we were like, you know, right time, right place, right things happening, you know. Mm-hmm. And you had enough people there that believed in the possibilities of things, which is also a process, you know. And people who had seen, you know, the lights in other places, too. You know, mm-hmm. they'd seen lights in the woods out at, you know, other people's houses or near their own house. And so, you know, we knew that there was things happening. Yeah. Um, but we didn't, you know, know they were going to happen that night. Boy, that it was, was quick... weird because... Oh, yeah. Go ahead. It was weird because um, we had that thing happen and we went back to your, your house towards the front kind of thing. And... It was, I think, three or four of us sitting on the front of my old Chevy Blazer, mm-hmm. and weird stuff kept happening, and my brain was like, oh, we need protection, or I need a tool, or something, and yeah. I was like, you have tall grass, and there's a stick, and boom, pinnacle, yep. and everyone started giggling, and I'm kind of like, hey, I've been trained, whatever, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And... And I'm like, it's like in every, you know, spook, there's the one kid who grabs a salt, I know what to do with this, you know, and tries mm-hmm. to make some kind of barrier symbol, like, I don't know what's going on, but I think we need some help, you know. And and then amongst us, there were people who had never seen anything like that before. Yeah. If you remember um, Dave's friend, Brad, he, mm-hmm. he, he came, he and Dave were the first ones to notice things and come into the house and go, oh, uh, hey, they're back. Yeah. And, <laughs> and boy, my buzz went. All it was just gone, boom, done, no more. And uh, Brad just kept saying, I've never seen anything like that. I, I 
what is it? What is it? I'd never seen anything like it. And I was like, you know, just, I don't, no one knows what it is, but it, I know what it looks like. And, and, you know, and he was like, what is it? And, and Dave was like, I'm not going to tell you right now. And nobody's mm-hmm. going to say any names of any sort, you know, just, you know, and eventually some of us just ended up sitting on your, on your blazer, uh, mm-hmm. waiting. And then, yeah. you know, slowly people trickled back into the house, but yeah, the stars were weird. I glanced up and stars were moving that hadn't been mm-hmm. moving and they moved into a circle above our heads and there were 12 stars and there were 12 people at the party. Yeah. It wasn't like it was an airplane kind of a thing. No, no. It's air- moving into a circle. Like circles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but also from that evening, we came up with the term, um, nothing. Yeah. The idea that, what is that? Um, nothing. Because yeah. we didn't want to acknowledge, but we didn't want to sort of shoot down some woman going, what the hell? You know, I'm seeing a thing. Are y'all seeing a thing too? What is that? Um, nothing. You yeah. know, and we're seeing it, it, it too, a, but we're not going to give a name, a name it. to it. We're not going to acknowledge it. We're just going to try to go along with what we're doing and kind of play from there. And it became our own little uh, jargon, lexicon, vulgate, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Of, uh, it's an I'm nothing. It's an other. Um, and, and trying to come up with terms and, and, and um, terminology and vocabulary to describe things that we were all experiencing, but we didn't really have the words to express that. This is back in the 90s, yeah. too. So, you know. And we're like, oh, that's a, uh, 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 you know, and you would yeah. be a three-hour-long conversation, and you're like, oh, cryptid, got it. Yeah, we it's didn't something. Have the words for yeah, those. it's something like you that. Know. You know, and and of course, like again, Brad never had a weird dream. Never, nobody in his family ever saw a ghost. He was completely mm-hmm. gobsmacked. He had no idea what, and it it horrified him. I felt terrible mm-hmm. for him, you know, because mm-hmm. I, he was just like, and then there's poor Zach. He didn't see a damn thing, you know, as, yeah. as, as always happened with him. And then once I saw the stars up there, you know, turning into a circle above us, I was like, so is this UFO? What is, is there a UFO? Co- what has happened? I, mm-hmm. uh. well, <laughs> According, according Lovecraft, the, the most basic fear that any human has ever had has been fear of the unknown. One of the ways to conquer fear of the unknown is to give it a name, give it a, give it a definition. And one of the weirdest things for us to experience is I do not know what I'm seeing. There's no mm-hmm. word for that in my language to express what that is. We might use ghost, spirit, light, apparition, a, a hundred different words and everyone's like, but yeah, but to me, that means this. Or to me, that, there's no common lexicon because we have been indoctrinated to it. We wouldn't, yeah. don't, we don't have the same shared experience of this is what this means. Yeah, our cultural you know. conditioning wasn't, it wasn't sufficient. And it wasn't mm-hmm. equal amongst all of us. Yeah. You know, what other people, you know, the p- bits and pieces we had experienced earlier, but it there were so many things happening that night and so mm-hmm. many people experiencing parts of it and not parts of it. It, it was, it was overwhelming. 
it also uh, for me at, at the time it was kind of one of those things of oh other people are are aware and I use the term awareness or aware that there are other things out in the world. Yeah. Since I know you're aware, we can have a conversation. Oh and, yeah. And have those yeah. conversations about what have you seen? Oh, here's what I've seen. You know, and finding people in the aware community. You know. Yeah. Of you have seen stuff. Oh, what have you seen? What is your experiences? Oh, that's kind of like what I've seen too. And coming up with a common vocabulary, common set of experiences, and like what you're doing on on your podcast and thing is like, this is not a, a an isolated phenomenon. This has been going no. on for centuries. Just no one's talking about it. Yeah, because because it's been. We had the Enlightenment period, which was good for a lot of stuff, and we're happy about that. You know, we figured out slavery was bad. So yeah, yeah. yay good mm -hmm. but we also disenchanted the world during that period mm -hmm. of time and so a lot of stuff that we already knew is kind of, it was lost or it was turned into you know little kid stories or something you we know, took the animism concept of was, a fae yeah, yeah and turned them into a disney disney folktale and i'm like yeah, yeah but you know yeah and, and that's ghosts a, became comical things in halloween yeah, you know. Yeah, Casper the Friendly Ghost or whatever. Exactly. I never did like that yeah. cartoon or the comic. I just yeah. But they it, they demonized it. They uh, Disneyfied it, if you will. Yeah. And it's the old stories from the old countries that everyone knew growing up, but we didn't talk about, like the actual story of Cinderella and the Red Hot Shoes, you know, or the actual stories of. Dot, 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 dot. And mm -hmm. like, yeah, this is not a happy little moment, you know, in, in life for people. But they only know the highlights, if you will, you know. The the Victorianized, because, sanitized. Yeah. Again, Americans love things sanitary, wrapped in plastic. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, they don't like the, the messy edges of things. Yeah. Um, if they can put it into a nice, neat, conveniently categorized package... Thank you, Agent Scully. We're fine. Otherwise, yeah. it's messy. And I don't like messy. I like things nice and neat and orderly, and we're all good. Because yeah. people love to know what's going to happen before it's going to happen. Which is what yeah. happened in COVID. We didn't know what was going to happen. There was a lot of panic because we just didn't know what was going on. You yeah. know? So, when you get into the paranormal, supernatural, whatever you want to use for the word for that experiences there is no well i can expect this or i can't expect that we yeah. have no idea and there's that great void of unknown stuff you well know. and you know once you've decided something something you mm -hmm. know it'll it'll do its damnedest to prove to you that it is that right and mm -hmm. then you decide okay that's that's what it is that's what it is mm -hmm. and then it will change yeah <laughs> and you will have something else happen that does not fit that at yeah. all and and it's just like really, really. There's a, a term that I liked. Um, I read in, in um, someone who's their writings is a bit off color for anthropology, but he equated the supernatural movements of the spiritualists in the '60s and '70s to the early naturalists trying to define what we're seeing in the world of that you know iguanas are land animals, but they're actually sea animals in the Galapagos, or this is a bird that flies, but no, it really doesn't you know and everything that you thought you knew about the natural yes. world suddenly was turned on its ear and it's not really what you knew yeah and they term, use the term supernaturalist 
You're still yeah. trying to experience the world that not everyone can actually, not everyone's been to the Galapagos. You right. Know, not everyone's been able to see this little part of the world that everything's up in, you know, trying to explain a platypus. Oh, yeah. I was about to say, as soon, you know, as soon as you think you know exactly what mammals are like, you get a damn platypus and then you're just like, you yeah. just feel like throwing your hands up and going, well, what, just whatever then, fine. You know? Right. <laughs> and you've got researchers like you and others who are going off in the world like, we need to open our vocabulary bigger. If we felt we know what it is and now we're seeing changes, well, maybe we're looking at a bigger picture. You're trying to mm -hmm. define an elephant by only looking at its tail. You know, yeah. someone else is defining yeah. it by its, its trunk kind of a thing. You know. And somebody else is touching its knee or its ear. You know, yeah. and it's not any of those. Which you've, you've played with, with the connection between UFOs and Fae and, and the other concepts is we're all probably talking about the same critter. But we're using different cultural lenses, different experiential uh, uh, lenses, and our own different vocabulary. Hey, this is very, very similar if you look at it in the right way. Step back three spaces and look at what we're actually seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Or essentially no different than the naturalists of the 17, 1800s. We're yeah. just trying to all put it all together and go, what are we actually seeing? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of and, interesting too. Yeah. Well, and if, if, uh, if reality turns out to be as malleable as, as some of what I'm looking at suggests, mm -hmm. I really hope that someday a, a flightless dodo walks out of the undergrowth <laughs> um, mm -hmm. in the southern hemisphere and, it, you know, clacks its beak or whatever they did to make noise. And yeah, there actually are people who have said they've seen them. So, you know, or well, you also, the Tasmanian tiger, you know, the yeah. thylacine. Yeah. When the second science says this is what it is, Four days later, someone's going to go, you know, we found a, four of those in a net in off of Burma, right? The thing you <laughs> yeah. thought was extinct and yeah. has been gone for a million years. Yeah, we've been catching those things for, for years. We just throw them back in the ocean with it because we don't want to eat them kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And yeah. scientific rigor has to go, what, what do you mean you've been playing with these? <laughs> but they're not part of Western science, so they've been ignored. Yeah. You yeah. know? And, you know, is it because Western science doesn't have the tools to understand that or doesn't have the breadth of knowledge to accept? Yeah, you don't know everything. Yeah. You know, that Western empiricism of the ivory tower academics who are like, no, we know how the world works. Uh, you have a pretty good idea. I'll give you that. Yeah. But you have to be open to the possibility that everything you know is absolutely wrong. <laughs> you, yeah. You know. Or at least a good chunk of it or things that you thought were separate are connected. Mm. You know, that's, that's the other thing that seems to be happening is that everything has connections to everything else. And mm -hmm. that used to be, you know, well, that's, that's mysticism. That's, uh, that, that's, that's some mystic stuff. You, you don't. And I'm like, mm. you know, if you look at it from an, an atomic level, we mm -hmm. are all connected to each other. That's yeah. spooky action at a distance. That's in quantum entanglement. That's all of those things. And, you know, some people are like, nah, you're, you're just using those terms wrong. And I'm like, no, actually, I'm not. Um, yeah. We are connected. So chill out on that. 
you know. Well, you could make and, you could make the argument that mysticism is just simply just a different form of science that has been widely rejected by the Western concepts of how reality works. You know. Yeah. So uh, there's a line in one of our favorite series: "We are all the stuff of stars." The the which, atoms that make up you and me are the same atoms that made up the you know during the Big Bang. Oh, wow, that is super, you know, astrophysics and, you know, physics and, you know, heavy, heavy science. But that's been a mystical truism. We are all uh, of the stars. Star stuff. For how long? Oh, yeah, Yeah. right. But you can't use mystical terms because it's degraded and laughable and, you know. Yeah, no. No. (laughs) No. Yeah. Yeah, that's something that Neil deGrasse Tyson says often, that we truly are star stuff, that we, the matter that makes up our bodies came out of dying stars. Yeah. You know, and supernovas, and there's truth to it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that that mystical look at it, that wonderment, does not take away anything from the truth. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why. Well, again, it's like animism being seen as a quote-unquote primitive belief system oh yeah 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 i'm sure as an anthropologist and a sociologist you have run across 50 11 different papers basically saying that that this is just a primitive you know i i know that the the tunes are changing now and the winds Mm -hmm. of change have hit those um disciplines but you know for a long time you know, when I was much, much younger, it mm. was that was the thing to say. Well, you know, animism well, about, is just primitive. You know, it's it's well, not developed. Even the idea of animism and shamanism, everything that is, is alive. And someone goes, oh, yeah, it's a forest. It's not alive. And we're like, actually, now that we have better tools, we can find out the trees are talking to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, and you would ask the same question of some Aboriginal shaman you know, a couple hundred years ago, he's like, I've been telling you this stuff for how long? Y'all just haven't been listening. Yeah. But it took yeah. our very crude, kludgy kind of toolbox a couple hundred years to find the tools that we need to be able to plug in and go, oh, yeah, they are talking. We just didn't realize that, you know. Now, we're animals, not sure what they're saying, but. Right, right. The we'll animals are talking. We don't know what they're saying, but they are talking. You know, mm-hmm. we don't have the tools to understand that, you know, um, and yet because we didn't understand it, we vilify it, we devalue it, we put it in a box and forget it in a closet, you know, yeah. how many books of research notes that could never be published because they break or defy the established convention of a given field. And it's like, do not open for 50 years. Why? Because in 50 years, the people that are pushing this idea will finally be dead. And maybe these ideas can come to the forefront. Right. And and be looked at differently and go, oh, maybe this Sphinx was water eroded. You know? But yeah. it's going to take a while and people to die off for those ideas to lose their concrete grip on academic life and the intellectual intelligentsia of a given society. Yeah. And that's why we we hope and pray for many archivists like Morgana to mm-hmm. do the work to preserve those notebooks that, you know, 
those white papers and notebooks that scholars have left in boxes not to be opened for a while. And we hope that they're all preserved. So when I was doing my graduate work um, down in Kentucky, uh, there was a book that literally said, or a, a box of notebooks. It says, do not open for 50 years. And it was sealed in like 53, I think. And I was down there in like 98, 99. And I'm like, okay, you do not put that label on a box of somethings and give graduate students to move it. Because we're just a little, you know, what is this this thing? And it's and it was not just, that long for it to have been yeah. 50 years, you know. But we were like, okay, you got to let's open this up. Just to see what, you know, because we were moving things because the closet flooded kind of a thing. And it was just people's ramblings and ideas and notes about certain things that would have been blasphemous in the field 50, yeah. in 1953, you know? And I'm like, yeah. oh, because uh, if someone tried to publish that or go in any any direction of those things, they would have been crucified within academia, you know? Yeah. So you've got to wonder if now this resurgence of podcasts and getting the information out there to people who have been curious about these topics but not really sure how to explore or experience or share their experiences you know one of the benefits of the information age is you have now access to a gob of information yeah but you have to figure out how to understand it what are we, we actually to... seeing you yeah know? you have to you have to understand it you have to parse through it because mm -hmm. as we all who have grown up with on the internet know that you know, there's a whole lot of really cool information. And then there's a lot of really just crap information yeah. that's just, oh, God, really? No, please, mm -hmm. no. And, you know, that, and that's where I get all like, you know, because for someone who experiences weird stuff and who believes other people talking about their mm -hmm. experiences, I'm awfully skeptical. That's the other, you know. I'm sort of like Fox and Scully squished together into one person, you know, but of mm -hmm. course, as the series goes on, he becomes in a way more cynical and skeptical and she becomes more of a believer. So, you know, that's the whole excitement of yeah. that show. Um, but you think but, using that show as an example, the true maxim, the truth is out there. We may never find it because truth is relative, you know? Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna sift through a mountain of facts and come up with an answer that meets all the requirements of our ideas. But and we can go looky, we've discovered blank, and a hundred people will go. But I can take those same facts and come up with a completely different alternative hypothesis that still fits fits all of them, and it has nothing to do with ghosts or fairies or you know whatever or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And I'm like, well, yeah, but if you start looking at astrophysics and quantum mechanics and you start, you know, you're really getting a little closer to that mystic level of, of understanding of the world and they can't use the M word because they'll get yeah. left out of, you know, the, the yeah. fields kind of a thing, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, that's probably, I, I hate admitting that you know had i been better at math i would have probably been a scientist maybe it's just as well because i you know i'm not cramped in into that purely rational mindset so i can 
kind of stretch that out and look at it. But your background is in journalism and writing, right? Mm-hmm. So in my mind, you're a perfect researcher. My background is in anthropology, sociology. I'm a researcher. I may not be a scientist, which is hard science and physics and whatever else, but I am definitely a researcher. You know, have notebook will travel kind of a thing. Yeah. And certain people, in my mind, they get that nugget or kernel of a question they have to answer. And the quest begins, you know? Yeah. And yeah. and they'll go from one question to another question to another question. To another, they're trying to understand what they're seeing and how they're seeing it. And they're, they're applying what they can of scientific rigor and what tools we have available to us to understand it even better. But our fields are going in radically different directions than modern science. So, yeah. you know. And then but we have it, the modern science that is going in our direction. And, and, you know, every time that happens, I'm like, you know, nearly knocked out. Like, oh, my God. You know, yeah. <laughs> they looked at that and saw the same thing as I did. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, look uh, at, I mean, I found it interesting that, you know, all of a sudden uh, our government is going, by the way, we do have evidence and knowledge of UFOs. We don't know what they are. But we're not going to hide that we have this information. Yes. And it was like, okay, so our government is going, yeah, we don't know what it is. And we may never know to, what it is. To me, that was the biggest admission. Yeah. Like, people are like, I thought we were going to have this big UFO thing and everybody would know what it was and they'd tell us the truth and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, look, it, the truth yeah. is they did tell us the truth. They don't know what it is. Yeah. Um, and nobody does. And, yeah. you know, that's, again, people don't like. We like to have mm -hmm. nice, neat boxes to put things in. Like, we want the UFO mm -hmm. to fit into the extraterrestrial box. We want it just, we'll tie it up with a bow mm -hmm. and keep it in there, and it'll be fine. We don't want to think about, oh, hey, you know, some of those those videos we've seen from the Navy shows these things coming up to or out of or down into water yeah. and then playing around up in the sky. Now that's, I mean, there's so many, so many reports of unidentified objects underwater and then mm -hmm. going above water or in the air going into water. Mm -hmm. So many reports of that. And it's been happening since the 1940s, probably happening since before then, but I can't on the top of my head jump you know, grab one and go, it's this, 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 this. Um, I do know that there were things like, you know, fireballs that seemed to be flaming coming up out of water in the 19th century, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, last time I checked, things that burn in flame yeah. and water, they, they don't come up out of water. You know, is yeah. it possible that, you know, it was some kind of phosphorus thing or, you know... Um, Something like that. Magnesium, because magnesium mm -hmm. can burn when it's wet. Oh, yeah. Maybe that could have been it, maybe. But still, who's playing with magnesium down? I mean, you know, Aquaman, what are you up to down there? What are you doing? Oh, yeah. You know, Poseidon, hello. <laughs> what are you doing there? Well, think of like the bloop signal that it's the ultra low frequency that no one knows mm -hmm. what it was, but it was in the middle of a deep part of the ocean and. They finally was like, yep, 
we're acknowledging it was a thing. We have no idea what it was, yep. but we're not going to hide that it was a thing. You know, yeah. um, like when um, they have the wow signal, we don't really know what it was or what it meant, but we're not going to hide the fact that it did happen, you know? Yeah. Because in a weird way, when like everyone in the community saw a thing and the government's like, no, you didn't. They're like, okay, you're not really accomplishing your goal because the second you tell us we didn't see a thing, we're going to make sure that everyone and their brother knows about the thing. You yeah, know? yeah. And maybe that's what they wanted. Maybe they wanted us spreading, you know, and then elaborating on it and turning it into nonsense. Maybe that's that was part of the plan, quote unquote. Well, it's I like playing telephone. You you tell yeah. you know your friend and they tell a friend and by the time that it gets out to the rest of the world it becomes so fantastical yeah that's not even a thing you know yeah. the researchers lost control of the information or are so bogged down trying to reverse engineer where did the story actually come from and going back to the actual source oh okay now we know what was going on but it is interesting that they're not hiding everything now but yeah. it's also no no admission of we know what this is. It's no, we have no clue. And you know? I actually believe that. I that, I don't yeah. think that's a lie. I think they don't know what most yeah. of it is. But Good. by acknowledging we don't know, it also opens the field. Well, what could it be based mm -hmm. on our understanding of physics and aerodynamics and blah 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 blah? You attach the problem, attack the problem from a very hard science or a very cultural science, soft science. Both and you know, well, what have we seen that might match this? And trying to come up with answers, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, I know that some of the things that people report, um, the large black triangles, for example. I used to think it was the blackbird, um, and and it was you know one of the one of the old or one of the old spy technology planes that. Mm -hmm. But they're reported as going slowly and silently. Yeah. Well, now, I hate to say this, but uh, jet aircraft are not silent, and they don't travel slowly. Because if they traveled right. slowly, they'd fall out of the sky, because yeah. that's not how lift works. Yeah. Um, so these, these big, lumbering, slow-moving objects, yeah. they can't be heavier than air. So are they lighter than air? Yeah, and we have to start understanding, based on what we know and how we understand it, what could this be by understanding what it could not be. It's probably not one of our supersonic jets kind of a thing, because that's yeah. just not how they fly, you know? Yeah. So if we eliminate the possible, whatever remains, you know, or However eliminate the impossible. improbable yeah. is the answer, or at least yeah. an answer that we can get to and hold on to until we figure something else out. Yeah. All right, you're right. We've been talking for two hours. So mm -hmm. we can pick this fun? up whenever you want to. Oh, it's okay. great. Okay. Awesome. Well, then, you know, if I'm stuck without a, a podcast episode, I'll I'll give you a call. <laughs> no problem. All great. right. Glad to have. All right. Thanks. And no problem. Talk with you later. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you.
Thank you. Thank you.